0: We are doing a question and answer series called Glad You Asked, and we are in part four today. Uh, Man, if you are first time with us, we just want to welcome you and invite you to open your heart to what God would have to speak to you. Um, Just like that song we just sang a couple of minutes ago, Christ Alone, the Cornerstone. We we are building this series on a foundation of what does Jesus have to say? What does God's word have to say? Uh, And many times we're finding questions that maybe our tradition or the things that we were taught might speak differently than what the Bible has to say. And so no matter what we've been taught, no matter what tradition says, no matter what our culture says, no matter even what our own conscience says, uh, we want to subject all things under the authority of Scripture. And what does the Bible have to say? So if you haven't been with us, we've answered questions the first week about the supernatural and the afterlife. And then then week two, we answered questions about our, our personal relationships, our horizontal relationships. Last week, we started our look at questions of culture, and we talked about Homosexuality is the most popular question that has been submitted, man. Uh, Time and time again, people have been asking these questions. And so all the questions that we're using for this series have come directly from you. You've either filled out a card and dropped it in the box, which you can continue to do out at the Connection Center, or you've texted those questions in, and you can continue to do that today. Uh, If you've got a question that pops up throughout our service, or maybe something that's already on your heart, uh, this number is 662-662. 404-2489, that's 662-404-2489, and that number will actually be on the bottom left-hand corner on the rest of the slides for you, so if you don't get it right now. That is okay if something pops up a little later on. And at the end of service, Melody will be doing as she has been doing throughout the series and, and picking one question that comes in that uh, I can handle in like a three to five minute answer format off the cuff. So pray that she picks wisely. Uh, and please send in whatever questions you have. We're having a lot of fun with these. So, so today we're going to continue in part two of our look at questions of culture. Like I said, last week we looked specifically at the questions revolving homosexuality. Today, we're going to move on to other aspects of culture. Um, Some of you have probably already mastered some of these areas that we're going to talk about today. Some of you already know the truth of the scripture, and some of you have this down. You're not struggling with this. You're not not giving in in these areas, and you're going to be very tempted to kind of distance yourself from this message, and I want to encourage you not to do that. I want to encourage you to to lean in, number one, because you might learn something you didn't already know, Uh, that that really will apply to your own life, but also because there's other people in your life who are going to have questions, people you work with, neighbors, relatives, maybe even your own children, that this message is going to help you to empower them with the truth of God's word. So let's look, without further ado, at these questions of culture. Question number one that came in, this actually was submitted on a Wednesday night by one of our students, but that's so applicable. Does the Bible say eating pork is bad? All Mississippians and Memphians said... No, right? Uh, I mean, we just destroy like a whole economy with this question right here. Um, shut down restaurants all over town. Uh, so we're going to get into this question, but we're going to link it with another question that may seem totally disconnected. I'm going to show you how they're connected. And that question is this. How does God feel about tattoos this one was actually filled out on one of the cards and dropped in a couple of weeks back how does God feel about tattoos and so to answer these two questions first of all we have to answer a third question that was texted in and it's going to give us our foundation for both of these and that third question is this do we have to obey the old testament laws of God if we are under grace why is the law important when I was growing up My brother and I, if we had something that we didn't want to do, that mom and dad wanted us to do, whether it was our homework or eating our vegetables or going somewhere with them that we didn't want to go, we'd always, kind of in this whiny voice, be like, do we have to? Any parents ever heard the do we have to question before? A couple of you. All right. Well, that was our go-to question, and my dad had the most annoying, most aggravating response to that question. Each and every time, without fail, he would say, no, you don't have to you get to. That's right. Somebody else heard my dad speak, or there was some other dude just like my dad somewhere. You don't have to, you get to. It drove me absolutely nuts. Can I say this? When it comes to any of God's commands, whether they be Old Testament or New Testament, the, the truth is, just like this question was asked, yes, we are under grace. My salvation is not determined by my obedience. ...to the commands of God. my Salvation is determined simply by my reliance and my faith in Christ alone... ...and his his sacrifice for my sin. That Jesus died for my sins. That's where my salvation comes. So whether I study 130 hours for a Sunday morning message... ...or I don't even show up to church on Sunday morning... ...and we don't have anybody to preach... ...none of that's going to determine whether I'm saved or not. I don't have to do anything. So I would say to you in answer to this question... ...no, you don't have to obey any of the Old Testament commands... But, yeah, you get to. See, God gave us His commands. He gave us His rules. He gave us His law for our benefit, to protect us. And so, any law that we approach in Scripture, any rule, anything that God says, we need to to see that not as a, a command that He put on us to burden us, but as something that He gave us to protect us, to keep us from harming ourselves, to keep us from harming others. But we are under grace. However, just because we're under grace and we don't have to obey the law, I would also say this. If you are truly a Christian, if the Holy Spirit truly lives inside you, you are going to want to obey God's word. Don't, be, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all of you is going to want to obey God's word or that you're always going to want to obey God's word. We all have rebellious moments and rebellious things and, and times where, man, we are drawn to sin. But there should be something inside of you. There should be a voice inside of you compelling you, I want to do right. I want to honor God. In fact, Jesus himself puts it this way in John chapter 14, verse 15. We're, we're going to read it from the New American Standard. He says, If you love me, You will keep my commandments. See, if you're a Christian, you better be in love with Jesus. You better be all about some Jesus. You better love some Jesus. And Jesus says, if you really love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Not because you're forced to, not because you're burdened to, not because you're afraid. I'm going to send you to hell if you don't, but because you're motivated by your love for me. And so if we're truly believers, if we truly know Jesus and have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we should want to obey his commands. The test of our love for Jesus is our commitment to obeying what has he said. The proof of our love is our obedience. So that brings us to the bigger question here, and the question that will bring together, bacon and tattoos and bacon tattoos, how should we approach the Old Testament? How do we approach Old Testament law? Well, there's 10 Old Testament commandments that most of us are probably at least somewhat aware of. But there's actually a whole lot more than the 10 commandments in the Old Testament. In the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, what we consider the books of law, there are 613 laws of God. A whole lot more than just 10. Virtually every Christian today would agree that we are commanded and, and supposed to obey the commands and the laws in the New Testament. Where the debate and the controversy comes is, what do we do about the laws in the Old Testament? Some people would say that we are supposed to follow and obey all of them, that, that Jesus did not come to, uh, to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, and that the law is still in place. There are Christians who believe that, man, we need to observe every single one of those laws. And there are other Christians who are like... Just pretty much throw the Old Testament out altogether. We don't need to observe any of them. We are under grace, not under law. And then there's other Christians who kind of pick and choose. We like this Old Testament law. We don't like that Old Testament law. So we'll follow this one and not follow that one. Where is the truth? What is kind of confusing, especially because when we read the New Testament and the New Covenant, we see that some of the Old Testament laws are discarded and some of them are embraced. So how do we know what's the difference? How do we know what are we supposed to do and what are we not expected to do in this day and age? Well, thankfully, uh, when we read the Old Testament, I think there's a couple of things that it does for us. First of all, I think the Old Testament gives us a deeper appreciation of Christ. When I read the Old Testament and I read about the ritual cleansings they had to go through, the animals they had to sacrifice, all that stuff, I get a much, much deeper appreciation that I don't have to do all that. That Jesus came to be my sacrifice for me. That he took my place. That I don't have to try and come up with a way to pay the price for all of my sin, for all of my struggle because Jesus paid the price for me. So I would tell you, don't ignore the Old Testament altogether. Read it. And as you read it, as you read through Leviticus and other Books that may seem wow, how could you even begin to try to live this stuff out? Praise God that you don't have to. Get a new found appreciation for Christ. Secondly, I would say this: there are some laws which are still in place today that we're supposed to observe, and I want to help you to understand which ones are discarded, which ones are in the past, and which ones exist today. I saw an illustration which I think. Uh, really is going to help you understand this as we get into it, because there's three different types of Old Testament law, and two of them we don't have to observe, and one of them we do, and we're going to go through those in just a minute. But the illustration uh, is basically like going through high school. I'm a high school graduate, praise God, I got my diploma, most likely to succeed, what up? Uh, so I went through high school, I did all that, I don't have to go to high school anymore. When I'm working with students, I'm constantly laughing at them, and their projects, and their tests, and their stress. I'm like, ha ha, I don't go to school, like, it's great. I've been delivered from that in Jesus' name. I'm past that season of my life. And, but when you're in high school, there are certain rules you have to observe, man. There's, there's a whole lot of rules you have to observe on school or at school, on your campus. When you get out of high school, a lot of those aren't there anymore. I don't have to... Respect a teacher. I don't have to listen to a principal anymore. I don't have to worry about... Man, in our school in Seattle, uh, we couldn't wear hats. We couldn't carry backpacks. We couldn't wear coats because there was so much gang violence going on and they were so worried about guns coming in. We couldn't do any of that stuff. I can wear hats. I can wear a backpack. I can wear a coat anywhere I want to. What up? Like I'm free from those rules and those laws. However, there are other things that I was supposed to do while I was in high school, rules that I was under, that I'm still under today. I can't just go and pull a fire alarm. I don't know if you guys ever did that in school. Not a good decision. Uh, That is a law, a rule that I'm supposed to continue to follow. And many, many, many other things that I couldn't do in high school that I'm still not supposed to do today. And, And so Old Testament is kind of like an old season in life where there are some rules from that that we've graduated out of and we're beyond. But there are also some rules that continue to apply, and I want to help you to understand how to discern them. Thankfully, one of the greatest church fathers, one of the early church fathers, a man named Tertullian, uh, in he lived between AD 160 and uh, AD 220s. He developed a system uh, which, man, church fathers and mothers and Man, just church leaders down through history have affirmed time and time again. Martin Luther affirmed this system. Many, many Christians have looked to this and said, man, this makes sense. This is a great way to categorize the Old Testament laws. I first found this actually when I was in Bible college. And, man, when I was first taught it, it was just like my eyes were open because I never knew how to say this is something we're still supposed to do and this is not. So I want to give it to you. There's three categories of Old Testament laws. The first is ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws, these are the laws that deal with anything. If you see the words clean and unclean, that's a ceremonial law. If it has anything to do with the temple or any sort of worship ceremonies, if it has to do with sacrifice, those are ceremonial laws. The priesthood, the tabernacle, all of that stuff is ceremonial law. The second category is what we call civil law. See, Israel was not just a religious entity. Israel was a theocracy. It was a nation. And so it was a nation led by God under the rule of God. And as a nation under God, God had laws for the people specifically of Israel. For example, somebody committed adultery in Israel. The penalty for adultery was you were going to get stoned. That was the rule. That was the law. That the penalty, the price for that sin was you were going to die under this particular theocracy. So we have ceremonial laws and civil laws. And then we have moral laws. These are the laws forbidding such things as rape, stealing, and murder. So this system helps us to understand how to respond to each category. When we get to the ceremonial laws, the things dealing with the clean and the unclean, the the worship ceremonies, all this type of stuff, all that was fulfilled in Christ. You see, we don't have to worry about what's unclean anymore because Jesus is clean and he came and made us clean. He's our cleanser. Jesus is our priest. He's our temple. He's our way to connect with God. And so all of the ceremonial laws, all that stuff where you have to wash this way and do this thing and sacrifice this beast, none of that applies to us under grace. Jesus is our sacrifice. So we don't need any other sacrifice. Ceremonial laws have all been fulfilled in Christ. The second category, the civil laws, we are not a theocracy. You can argue over whether America is a republic or a democracy or any other kind of government, but we are not a theocracy. We are ruled by law. We are ruled by people. We are not ruled by God. Now, we as individuals are ruled by God, but our country is not a theocracy. And so the rules for ancient Israel, the laws that govern ancient Israel, don't apply here. If you find out that your neighbor is cheating on his wife, you don't get to take a rock and bash his head in. That is sin. That is wrong. That is Murder. You are not supposed to do that. You can't be like, well, hey, the Bible says I'm supposed to kill adulterers. No. does not say that for you. Obviously, it's an extreme example, but, but we need to understand anything that involves the government of Israel itself as a nation, we're not under those laws anymore. Now, we are under American law. We are under Mississippi law, and we are commanded to obey the laws of our country, to obey, obey the laws of our land. So even though the civil laws of Israel don't apply to us anymore, the Bible is very, very clear that we're supposed to submit to our governing authorities. And so this comes to the last category, and that's moral law. The moral laws are still binding on us. These are the ways that God wants us to live, to walk in holiness. And so when we see a law in the Old Testament, we need to determine, is it a ceremonial law, is it a civil law, or is it a moral law? So with this foundation, going back to our opening questions, does the Bible say that eating pork is bad. Yes, the Bible does say that. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, it lays down guidelines for clean foods and unclean foods, and here's what it says. It says that any animal that has a split hoof, a divided hoof, and chews the cud, that's free for you to eat, and anything else is not. That's essentially the guideline, and so then it goes through each specific animal, and it says pigs, they have a split hoof, But they don't chew the cud, so you can't have pigs. So no barbecue, no ribs, no bacon for the ancient Israelite Jews. Uh, Today, does this apply to us or not? Thankfully, this does not apply. This is ceremonial law. This is clean and unclean. We had bacon in here on Father's Day, and I think Jesus was glorified in it. So uh, we are all about some pork. I know one of our small groups is having barbecue tomorrow night. They didn't even know we were preaching about pork. So Olive Branch City Group, enjoy Your barbecue tomorrow night, and don't feel like you got to repent after you eat it, unless you eat too much. Gluttony is sin. Gluttony is bad, but uh, eating pork in and of itself is not. Uh, In fact, we didn't even need Tertullian's system for this one because this is actually specifically addressed in the New Testament in the Acts chapter ten. The Apostle Peter has a vision where a sheet comes down and has all sorts of unclean animals on it, and God basically says, "Don't call anything unclean that I have made." clean and God's using this to teach him that Gentiles which is most of us are no longer unclean that Jesus died for all of us and not just the Jews but he also used it to say eat whatever you want enjoy it you don't have to worry about ceremonial law anymore so second question we mentioned a little earlier is a little trickier how does God feel about tattoos And I know in a group like this, there's going to be some very staunch opinions, probably on both sides. I know in this room right now, we have at least one tattoo artist. We have at least one person who has the City Church logo tattooed on his body. Uh, And we have other people uh, who probably are very staunchly against tattoos. Uh, I'm not going to worry about any of your situations. I'm going to preach what is the Bible. Have to say. So here's where we find a law against tattoos. It is also in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, 1928. It says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. So we do see tattoos expressly forbidden in the Old Testament. So what question do we need to ask? What type of a law is this? Is this a ceremonial law? Is it a civil law? Or is it a moral law? Now, there are arguments to be made for it being a moral law or for it being a ceremonial law, I feel pretty strongly that this is a ceremonial law. And here's why. In this day and age, the the tribes, the cultures around Israel, that they were actually, they weren't even in Israel yet. They were on their way to Israel when this law comes down. But the the people groups around where they were about to settle, one of the ways that they worshipped is they would worship by cutting themselves and marking themselves. They would worship their pagan gods, their heathen gods, basically They would worship demons. And so God says, you're not going to worship me the way that these other people worship their gods. You're not going to mark yourself. You're not going to cut yourself. My worship is going to be different. You're not doing that to yourself. And so when I read that, I see this as involving worship and being a ceremonial law, which ceremonial laws are all fulfilled in Christ. Now, there are pastors and, and teachers who would tell you that this is the moral law and that it is wrong and sinful to have a tattoo. I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think, uh, well for one thing my wife has a tattoo and I married her anyway. Uh, so <laughs> I did not have any tattoos. I went through a phase in college where I was really into piercings and I got one piercing and then I got another piercing and then I got another piercing and, before, and I was like man before I know it I'm going to have like 53 things hanging out of my face and I don't want to be that guy so I kind of had to back off uh, and that, that taught me very quickly I don't need tattoos because if I get one I'm going to have 12. Uh, so I'm not getting tattoos, that's something I've never done, but I don't believe that having a tattoo is sinful. There's actually one other place in scripture which does not specifically talk about tattoos, but which, when I read it, it sounds an awful lot like a tattoo. I'm going to give it to you, you can make the decision for yourself. It's Revelation chapter 19, it's a description of Jesus when Jesus comes back. The Bible doesn't actually say a whole lot about what Jesus looked like while he was on earth. But it tells us a whole lot about what Jesus is going to look like when he returns. And we see this description. It's a pretty awesome passage. It says, his eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he he himself. So there's a name written on Jesus. Is that a tattoo? I don't know. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh. So not just on his robe, actually on his thigh he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when I read that, and my picture that comes in my head is Jesus with a tat, on his thigh. Do I know if that's the case? No. I'm not trying to blaspheme. Don't like walk out of here. That terrible pastor doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not saying it's a tattoo for sure. But it sounds an awful lot like a tattoo to me. Uh, I would not just use that and say. Man this passage. Some of you are like. I'm going to tattoo Revelation 19 on me. Uh, like, <laughs> be all about that now. Uh, I, I would not walk out of here and be like. Okay I'm going a tattoo because Jesus has a tattoo. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but when I read that. That is kind of. What I see. Um, So, I don't think getting a tattoo is sinful, but here's what I would say. If you're thinking about getting a tattoo, ask yourself, why am I doing this? What is your motivation? You see, in the New Testament, things that are not expressly forbidden really come down to a matter of the heart. Why am I doing this thing? What is my motivation? So, I would say this if you're thinking about getting a tattoo, Are you doing it because you want people to notice you? Are you doing it because you want people to give you attention? That's why I was getting piercing after piercing. Because every new piercing was new attention. People asking about, hey, did this hurt? And then you lie to them and say no. Like, what is that all about? Uh, But we're constantly getting new conversation. Man, it was all about attention. So if you're getting a tattoo because you want people to notice you, you need to know this. As Christians, our desire is to get people to notice Jesus, not us. Scripture is very clear that modesty, we are not supposed to be bringing attention to ourselves. We are not supposed to be getting people to try to notice me. My job is to reflect him and to point people to him. So if your motivation for getting a tattoo is so people see you, I would say I would not get that tattoo. Is your motivation to get the tattoo because you want your parents to get mad? You want to get mom and dad the finger. If that's your motivation for 100%, sin, period. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. If you want to go out and get a tattoo because you know it's going to freak mom out, don't get a tattoo. It's the wrong motivation to put something permanently on your body. Uh, If you want to get a tattoo because you're drunk and you got nothing better to do, don't get a tattoo. In fact, I think we got a picture. If you go ahead and put that up for us. Uh, This is what happens when you get a drunk tattoo. Uh, Saw this online this week. It's no regrets, but it's misspelled. You think he's got a regret now. Uh, So... Don't go out and get tatted up because you've had too much of something in your system. Uh, don't get a tattoo because you're bored. Check your motives. What's your reason? If your reason uh, is, is nothing sinful, if it's nothing to bring glory to yourself or attention to yourself, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I'm not encouraging you to go out and do it. Uh, if you're under 18 and living in your parents' house, or even if you're living in your parents' house over 18, obey your parents' rules. Obey the laws that mom and dad have for you. Uh, But I don't believe that... Dwindle, you want to say that one more time? Dwindle said amen. So hopefully his children are within the sound of his voice Uh, so they can catch that hint. So, uh, to review, uh, if you come across an Old Testament law, check, is it a moral law? Is it a civil law? Or is it a ceremonial law? If it's a moral law, it absolutely still applies to us. If it's a ceremonial law, it does not. It's been fulfilled in Christ. If it's a civil law... We don't live in ancient Israel, we live in America, obey the laws of the United States. So, our last two questions of culture today, we're also going to group together because there's going to be some overlap in their answers. Question four is this, did Jesus drink wine? Did Jesus drink wine? And question five, what does the Bible say about weed? I told you we were going to get to this one, today's the day. Isn't this series fun? Tattoos, pork, wine, and weed. That's what's up. <laughs> Praise Jesus. It's like a house party gone bad up in here today. Uh so let's start with the first one. Question four. Did Jesus drink wine? I'm gonna answer the question and then I'm gonna answer what I think is the question behind the question. So cutting straight to the chase, yes, Jesus drunk wine. Um I grew up being taught that Jesus did not drink wine. I don't know if any of you were taught that same thing. Uh, If you were taught that way, you were probably taught one of these two things. I was actually taught both of them. The first thing you would be taught if you were taught Jesus didn't drink wine is that Jesus was a Nazarite, that Jesus had taken a Nazarite vow. In Scripture, we see at least two examples of people who take this vow. Uh, Those examples are Samson in the Old Testament and John the Baptist in the New Testament. and Among other things, Nazarites couldn't cut their hair. They couldn't drink alcohol. A Nazarite was was a particular vow taken specifically by people from the city of Nazareth. And so this is where the idea comes that Jesus was a Nazarite because he was from Nazareth. But you didn't have to be a Nazarite if you're from Nazareth. It was something that certain people did to set themselves apart. The second thing you've probably been taught if you're taught that Jesus didn't drink wine is... Well, that Jesus did drink wine, but the wine they had back then didn't have alcohol in it. It was just grape juice. Anybody ever heard that one before? I was taught, this is what, man, from the pulpit, youth pastor, man, Jesus did not drink alcoholic wine. Now, as I've gotten older and started to study things for myself, here's what I discovered. This teaching did not come about until about the late 1800s. Uh, There was a movement towards what they called teetotalers. Teetotalers wanted to ban alcohol. They actually won, and they got prohibition in the United States in the early 1900s. But part of their movement was they had to embrace the fact, well, how can we ban alcohol when everybody's going to say, well, Jesus drank alcohol? Well, we've got to tell people that he drank wine, but it didn't have alcohol in it. And so they began to tell people this, and it stuck. And it's still around 140, 150 years later. Churches in America, very, very many of them, Believe this. Historically, scripturally, it's really, really hard to make this argument. I want to show you a couple of things so you can understand that this is not just my opinion. Um, Jesus specifically preached against drunkenness. If the wine that they had did not have alcohol in it, how, why are you preaching against getting drunk? On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit shows up and fills. The, the 120 in the upper room, and they're speaking in other tongues. What is the reaction of the crowd? Is they've had too much wine. They think that they're drunk. But notice Peter's reaction. Peter doesn't say, What are you talking about? Our wine can't get you drunk. <laughs> Peter says, No, it's too early in the day. We haven't had that much yet. Uh, he doesn't say, You can't get drunk with this stuff. He just says, We haven't had, we're not drunk. It's not where we're at. So, so we see in the New Testament specific examples where the wine that they had did get people drunk. And then we see this in Luke chapter 7, also appears in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is speaking, and he says, he's talking to the Pharisees. He said, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, because he was a Nazarite. And you say he has a demon, the Son of Man, which is Jesus, came eating and drinking. And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, Sinners. Now, was Jesus a glutton and a drunkard? Absolutely not. Jesus never sinned one time. But Jesus in this does not refute at all that, hey, I came, I eat, and I drink. Jesus, I believe, pretty openly said, yeah, I drink wine. We see Jesus create wine at a wedding. We see Jesus distribute wine at the Lord's Supper. I think it's very hard for us to say Jesus did not drink wine. Now, here's the root of this idea. We like to have black and white rules. We like to say this is okay all the time or this is never okay. And so as Christians, a lot of times we'll take something that we see as is, is negative, that's harmful. Like growing up, we were taught not to listen to secular music. Hey, there's some, there's some bad stuff in secular music, so you're, all secular music is wrong. And then I go have something to eat at Chili's, and they're playing Blink-182, and I feel like a sinner because I hear this secular song, uh, I don't believe that that's grace. I don't believe that that's God's plan. Uh, Is there secular music that's harmful? Absolutely. Is there stuff that we should not put into ourselves? 110%. But it's not just because something happens to be created by somebody who's not a Christian. We need to be able to discern. And I think the same thing is true with alcohol. We need to be able to discern what's right and what's wrong. So, as you can see, I don't think that drinking alcohol is a sin in and of itself. Jesus did it. The Bible never, ever, in any place tells us not to drink alcohol. However, drinking alcohol can be a sin. And I'm going to show you six ways that it can be sinful to help you to have a guide for determining, should I drink or should I not? The first way that drinking alcohol can be sinful is drinking is a sin when it leads to drunkenness. Time and time and time and time and time again, the Bible is absolutely clear. Do not get drunk. Don't mess with it. Don't play with it. Ephesians 5.18 is one example. It says, do not get drunk. There you go. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 19 and 21 has a list of sins, and every time we see a list like this in the New Testament, drunkenness pops up. This one says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. G.K. Chesterton, the great English theologian and writer, he put it this way, and I think he summed it up so well. He says that we should thank God for beer and Burgundy by not drinking too much of them. Uh, If you want to drink, I think that you can, but you better not drink too much. There is a clear line, and don't get as close to the line as you can, and then, oh, I guess I had one too many. Stay away from the line. Don't give yourself over. To drinking. Getting drunk is never, ever okay. It's not okay to get buzzed. It's not okay to get tipsy. It's sin. And as Christians, as God's holy people, we've got to be set apart and we can't get to that place. Next place, where, next way that we see drinking is a sin is drinking is a sin when doing so is disobeying authority. If you're under 21 years old in this room, drinking alcohol for you is sin. Under the authority of our nation, you are not supposed to drink. 1 Peter 2 gives us uh, a clear command to submit ourselves to governmental authorities. Romans 13 gives us a clear command to submit to governmental authorities. Romans chapter 1, over and over again, we see it affirmed that we're supposed to submit to the government. So not just the law, but there are other ways, other types of authority that we must submit to. Uh, If you're over 21 and you're still living at home, get a job and move out. Uh, But in the meantime, you're still under your parental authority. You still need to obey their rules. So if you're 25 and mom and dad don't want alcohol in the house, you don't get to drink. Get a house. Get an apartment. Get a job. But don't drink while you're staying with mom and dad. You're under their parental authority. Uh, I went to a Christian college, Toccoa Falls College in northeast Georgia. And at our Christian college, they were absolutely anti-alcohol. We had to sign a covenant saying we would not drink. Not only could we not drink, we could not work in a place that sold alcohol. This is how hardcore they were. So for me, at that season in my life, drinking would have been a sin. Even if I was over 21, even if no other authority in my life said no, but I agreed to submit to the authority of this school and go to this school. And so drinking alcohol for me would have been sinful. Now, that's also the same season in my life when I got my tongue pierced, and I wasn't supposed to do that either. And that's why I took my tongue piercing out, because I was in rebellion to the school authorities, and there was a cute girl who pointed that out to me. Uh, And so I got it right. Took my tongue piercing out. Uh, we got to submit to the authorities in our life. Uh, Spiritual authority. There was a season in my life where I worked at a church in Oklahoma where if you were going to serve in the youth ministry, you couldn't drink alcohol. If you were going to serve on staff, you couldn't drink alcohol. I was over 21 years old. If I would have drank alcohol in any of those situations, I'd have been in sin because I'd have been violating the spiritual authority in my life. Many Christians go to churches where they preach. Do not drink. I think if you go to one of those churches, if you're a member of one of those churches, you don't need to drink. You need to be submitted to the authority. You need to be submitted to what's being taught in your church. Or maybe there's agreements for different levels of leadership where, hey, I'm not going to drink at this level. If you agree to something like that, submit to that authority. It is sinful for you to violate that authority. Next way that drinking is a sin is drinking is a sin when you are drinking to try to escape from something. Man, when when you've got a bad day, when you have a rough day at the office, you got bad news from the doctor, your team just lost the big big game. Many of us, even Christians, we think, hey, I'm going to turn to this glass of wine, I'm going to turn to this bottle. I think that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Psalm 2520 is one of many, many examples that shows us God has something better. It says, guard my life and rescue me. Do not let me be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. When you're having a rough day, your refuge should not be in a drink. Your refuge should be in Jesus. He is the one we should turn to. He is the one who can comfort you. He is the one who can take away your pain. Don't short-circuit the process by putting something down your throat. Next, fourth way. Drinking is a sin when you are drinking to try to impress somebody. This probably applies more to younger people than to older people, but probably to older people in some situations too. If you're drinking to see, somebody can see how cool you are because you're drinking, you're an idiot. Don't drink for that reason. Don't do anything to try to impress Somebody else, to to step up so somebody else can see you. Be yourself. Next way, drinking is a sin when you're causing somebody else to stumble. If your drinking causes somebody else to sin, if you, in your freedom, in your liberty, are not sinning, but you're causing somebody else or leading somebody else to sin, Scripture is very clear that that is sinful. I have youth pastor friends who don't drink uh, unless they're on vacation far, far away from town because they're not going to take any chance that a young person would walk in and see them drinking a beer, drinking a margarita, whatever, and think that, hey, Pastor so-and-so drinks, so that makes it okay for me to drink. And that kid goes out and, and, and blows it and falls into sin. They're not going to take that chance. It's a sin for us to do something when we're causing somebody else. To stumble, Uh, another example would be like drinking around somebody that you know has a problem with alcohol, that you know is an alcoholic, Uh, and you have them over to your house for, for burgers, and you know they struggle with this, and you've got beer out on the counter, oh, hey, grab one, and that may be the one thing that leads them off back into a relapse. So it's a sin for us to drink when we cause somebody else to sin. And the last one, I don't think this one will be on the screen, but when God put on me right as I was getting ready to get up here today, is that drinking is a sin when it violates your personal convictions. Um, if God's told you not to drink, don't drink. If you've got a conviction on you, my dad was an alcoholic for almost 20 years before he came to Jesus. And when Jesus got a hold of him, took it away from him like that. I mean, he had no desire for alcohol from that point forward. And here he is, my dad got saved when he was 33 and he's 69, so do the math. He's been saved 36 years. He doesn't drink. He's got a conviction not to drink because he says, I'm not going to do something to take me back to that place, that junk that I was in before I, Jesus got a hold of me. He delivered me from that. I'm not going back to it. My dad's got a conviction not to drink. He doesn't drink. I believe it would be sinful for my dad to drink. I've got a conviction not to drink because I grew up in a family with a whole lot of alcoholism. I've seen the destruction. I've seen what it's done to both of my brothers. I've got a conviction not to drink. It's not something that I can do. It's not something that is smart for me, that's good for me, that's wise for me. Um, I don't believe that drinking is sinful in and of itself, but I believe there are many situations that it's not. And if you have situations that don't fall into one of those categories, praise God. Enjoy it. Be wise. Be smart. Think about what you're doing. Don't plaster it all over Facebook so a bunch of teenagers get the idea that, hey, I know whose cabinet to rob. Uh, like, be wise about what you're doing, but I don't think drinking in and of itself is sinful. Just be very careful. Last question of the day What does the Bible say about weed? Potheads are funny people. You ever known a pothead? Potheads say funny, funny things, don't they? Potheads say things like, man, Jesus smoked weed. You ever heard that one? Or maybe not. I've heard that one. I've had my brother tell me that, in fact. Uh, Potheads say things like, well, Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. All, all the disciples, when he died, they were really sad, and so they all got high, and then they thought Jesus raised from the dead. I've heard that one. Potheads are funny, funny people. They say some crazy, crazy things. They will say just about anything. As far as this question is concerned, the Bible does not specifically talk about marijuana. Some of you are like, what's weed? It's marijuana. Sorry, I should have clarified that. Uh, the Bible does not talk about that. It doesn't even talk about getting high, and so we're going to use this. Marijuana is the example from the question, but I think this is going to apply across all drugs The way we answer this. Uh, The simple answer used to be, well, the Bible says obey the law, and the law says don't smoke marijuana, so don't smoke weed. However, laws in America are changing. There are now 18 states where medical marijuana is legal, and there are two states where recreational marijuana is legal, Colorado and Washington. I'm from Washington. Not real proud of that one. But uh, it's happened. So the question is, the next time you're on a ski vacation to Colorado, can you do a little puff-puff give? Is this okay for you when it's legal? There are a lot of people who would point to Genesis 129 and say yes. Genesis 129 says this. It says, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. So the conclusion is, hey, marijuana comes from a plant called cannabis, It's a seed-bearing plant, therefore God has given it to us. Let's enjoy it. That's what they say. I promise you, if you don't know any potheads, you're missing out on some crazy stuff. Uh, So that's the conclusion that they will draw, that God has given us marijuana. Well, truthfully, yes, God created marijuana. And yes, God gave us marijuana. However, they leave off the last part of the verse. And the last part of the verse takes it a whole different direction. The verse actually says this, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for fun. (laughs) They will be yours for food. This verse is not affirming we can do whatever we want with anything we want. This verse is affirming that, hey, plants exist for us to eat. God has given us plants for food. This doesn't mean that using plants for anything besides food is sinful. We build houses out of wood. That's a good thing. There are many other beneficial things that come from plants, but it doesn't mean everything we do with the plant is okay. In the same way God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the animals, in the same way that that doesn't mean it's okay for us to go out and kick puppies, doesn't mean it's okay. Just because God gave us plants doesn't mean it's okay for us to use them any way that we want. It's not okay for you to take poison ivy and put it in your brother's bed. Uh, we would all agree with that, that that would be wrong. doesn't mean anything and everything goes. So what does the Bible say about smoking, smoking weed? As we've said all series, when the Bible doesn't specifically speak to something, we're going to point to biblical principle. What is the principle here? And I think there is very clear biblical principle, and it's about drunkenness. We've already covered it. To some degree, I'm going to give you one more passage here from First Peter chapter one. It says, "Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober." Partially, mostly, usually, fully sober. Minds that are fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ has revealed it is coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. God has called his people to be set apart, to be different to be holy. And when we put chemicals in our body that take away our ability to, to use our minds that God has given us to make decisions, we're not doing God's best. We're, we're in sin. It's very clear in Scripture that getting drunk, getting high is never okay, whether that happens to be smoking chronic or huffing paint or swallowing molly or dropping acid or any other type of drug. If you're doing something that takes away your ability to make right decisions in your right mind is sin. One of the greatest gifts God has given us is our mind, our ability to choose right and wrong. And when we put something in there that affects that ability, it's not the best thing for us. So, scriptural principle here is clear. It's not acceptable for Christians to get high. Thank you for all of you who submitted these questions. Glad you asked.